Hello, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another podcast from the ATS Assembly on Clinical Problems. I'm Lucian Martz at Emory University, and I'm joined today by Dr. Kenneth Chapman. Dr. Chapman is a professor of medicine at the University Health Network in Toronto, where he serves as the director of the Asthma and Airway Center of the University Health Network and director of the Canadian Network for Asthma Care. His research is designed to assess and disseminate optimal strategies for managing asthma and COPD. He's helped author over 400 publications, and I've asked him here today to discuss the study to understand the safety and efficacy of ICS withdrawal from triple therapy and COPD, or SUNSET trial, which was recently published in the Blue Journal. Dr. Chapman, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here with you. I think uh, SUNSET makes for an interesting discussion, and yes, I do prefer the shorter title. I was hoping we could start by hearing about some of the background and impetus for this study. For many years, we've regarded bronchodilators as the foundation of care in COPD, and there's been controversy about inhaled steroids. So we've been enthusiastic about long-acting antimuscarinic agents in COPD. We've been enthusiastic about long-acting beta agonists, and we know that inhaled steroids are foundational in asthma, but there's been a lot of debate about what they can do in COPD. After many, many studies, we've decided that inhaled steroids do something for patients with COPD. The something seems to be exacerbation reduction. And to clarify, it doesn't seem to be exacerbation reduction for all COPD patients. Indeed, we're starting to parse out different types of COPD. Some of our COPD patients are very much exacerbation prone. Maybe it's the patients who are somewhat asthma-like even the asthma COPD overlap patients. And yet, if we look around the world, doctors who are charged with treating patients who have COPD have lumped everybody together. And so although not everybody with COPD benefits from inhaled steroids, we see tremendous use of so-called triple therapy, patients who are on everything, the kitchen sink, inhaled steroids, long-acting beta agonists, and long-acting antimuscarinics. So now that we understand that only a subset of our patients really benefits from inhaled steroids. The background to sunset is, well, how do we simplify or de-escalate? If somebody's on triple therapy and doesn't seem to need triple therapy, how do we get to a more rational and appropriate treatment regimen? And with that background, how do you go about addressing that question? Can you tell us about the study design of sunset? In looking at the Sunset study design, we owe a lot to the very familiar WISDOM trial that Helgo Magnuson and colleagues published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In that trial, they took patients from triple therapy with inhaled fluticasone, salmeterol, teotropium, and randomized them to either continue on that triple regimen for a year or to gradually decrease the amount of fluticasone to zero uh, and continue on dual therapy. Now, they reported to us that there was no difference between patients with COPD who continued triple therapy or who stopped the inhaled steroid portion over the course of the subsequent year in terms of exacerbations. They reported a small difference in lung function. There were a couple of limitations. First of all, if you're a clinician, if you're there in your office, you're in the trenches, it's a very complex process to gradually decrease somebody's inhaled corticosteroids. Is that something we're going to do in the office? Probably not. Second thing is, if we look closely at the regimens that were used, patients who 
de-escalated or dropped their inhaled steroid in wisdom, were left on a twice-daily LABA, salmeterol, a first-generation LABA, and a once-daily LAMA. Well, the listeners will know that in the 21st century, we've now got second-generation LABAs. They last for 24 hours, and that gives us once-daily LABA-LAMA combinations. That's probably something we're going to use instead of a twice-daily beta agonist and a once-daily LAMA. Finally, as we look closely at wisdom, although everybody entered that particular trial on triple therapy, it turns out that only a few of the patients, a minority of the patients, had actually been taking triple therapy in the community long-term. Most of them were artificially bumped up to triple therapy in order that the investigators could de-escalate. So Sunset was, if you will, a a refinement, a a pragmatic wisdom-type trial. It was a trial in patients who, A, weren't exacerbating, B, had been using long-term triple therapy in the community nonetheless, and C, would either continue on a triple therapy or would de-escalate to a once-daily labalama. And thus we have Sunset the trial that, if you will, brings wisdom into the office and makes it practical and answers the question, does this make sense? Can we do this? Thank you so much. So it sounds like, as you mentioned, this is more of a pragmatic, real-world-based trial to see exactly what happens with the so-called non-exacerbators, the gold group A, B, COPD patients, when withdrawing the inhaled corticosteroid portion of their inhaler therapy. And if you could briefly go over the results of the trial, what did you all find? I'll just pause and comment for a moment. It does bring the treatment of COPD, the de-escalation question, down to those group AB patients, particularly the B patients. And of course, that's where the majority of COPD patients can be found with the latest revision of the gold strategy, where we no longer base our pharmacotherapy on a measured lung function, but where we rely on symptoms and exacerbation tendency. It's only a minority of patients who are frequent exacerbators, two or more per year. So to ballpark it, depending on the population you're you're examining, perhaps three-quarters of our patients are not frequent exacerbators. So back to Sunset, we recruited a little over 1,000 patients who were not exacerbators, not frequent exacerbators, and who were nonetheless on triple therapy in the community at the time of screening and recruitment. Those patients were then characterized. We drew blood. We'll come back to this. We looked at blood eosinophil counts, and then they were randomized for the next six months to either take triple therapy, and that was standardized to fluticasone, salmeterol, teotropium, or to take the LABA-LAMA combination once daily into Caterol glycopuronium. That would be the worldwide formulation, the once-daily formulation, as opposed to the American formulation of that dual labalama bronchodilator. The results were, first of all, in terms of lung function, which was our primary outcome variable, and then, of course, other endpoints, including exacerbations. Maybe the brief statement is, it looked very much like wisdom. That is, in terms of lung function, there was a tiny decrease in FEV1 in patients who de-escalated to labalama 
and left their inhaled steward behind. The difference in FEV1 was 26 ml. So the pulmonary audience listening will know that we're never going to measure that in an individual patient. They might also recall that's a little smaller than the estimate of trough FEV1 change from the WISDOM trial. The difference in the WISDOM trial was just over 40 mLs. And that meant that the LABA-LAMA regimen could not be considered non-inferiority. This was framed as a non-inferiority trial. And the confidence limits around that decrease in FEV1 encompassed our endpoint threshold of 50 mL. So yes, there was a tiny change in FEV1. Moving forward over the six months, in terms of exacerbations, there was no difference in exacerbation rate between the group of patients on labalama and the group of patients who remained on triple therapy. Now, I should quickly add, because I've already mentioned eosinophils, if we do look at the occasional patient who had an exacerbation, and of course that does happen, it was more likely to happen in patients with a baseline blood eosinophil count of 300 or higher. In fact, later on, and this is something we're still looking at, if we looked at patients whose blood eosinophil count was persistently above 300, so we have a couple of blood eosinophil measurements at screening and at randomization or baseline, those were the most likely patients to have an exacerbation. So we didn't see a lot of exacerbations, but that would say, again, bringing it back to the office for the clinician, if you're thinking about this de-escalation step, you're going to think about it in patients who don't exacerbate frequently, and you might cast your eye back on a CBC, look at the blood eosinophil count, and you might move cautiously if you're finding high blood eosinophil counts. You won't have that same sense of caution or concern if the patient's eosinophil count is well down in the normal range. So it sounds like there was a slight decrease in lung function with de-escalation, the clinical implications of which are not entirely known. But some intriguing findings are that patients with an eosinophil count greater than 300 tended to be the more frequent exacerbators when de-escalating inhaled corticosteroid therapy. And you briefly mentioned how this relates to wisdom. I was wondering if you could go into more detail about how you think your results compare to other recent trials of inhaler management and COPD. That includes wisdom, the recent IMPACT study, which more or less did the opposite. They increased inhaler therapy and and added on an inhaled corticosteroid to patients with COPD. How do you relate those findings to your current findings? I think the devil is in the details, and I think it can be confusing for people who read headlines, try to take away bottom lines from these various studies. In fact, they're all very consistent. The results of this study, Sunset, is completely consistent with the results of IMPACT. That is, we're looking at different ends of the spectrum. IMPACT recruited patients with COPD who were exacerbation-prone, and they said, Triple therapy that includes an inhaled steroid makes a difference, and that seems to be entirely reasonable. At our end of the spectrum, Sunset, we're looking at the majority of COPD patients who are not frequent exacerbators, and for them, inhaled corticosteroids can be withdrawn or de-escalated safely with minor changes in lung function and no difference in exacerbation rate. And so, 
it perhaps becomes a question of whether you're a lumper or a splitter. Do you want to ballpark everybody as requiring maximal therapy? Are you going to prescribe more precisely? Are you going to practice perhaps a personalized medicine? And certainly it's an important question because the inhaled steroids come with something of a cost. And I don't mean, of course, financial cost, but we've come to recognize that inhaled corticosteroids are associated with significant risk. I think the one that's caught our attention most in the last five to 10 years has been the hitherto unsuspected risk of infectious disease. The pneumonia signal appeared in the TORCH trial, and we've subsequently seen it in all studies that have looked for it. Patients with COPD who use inhaled corticosteroids are more likely to have pneumonia than patients with COPD who don't use inhaled corticosteroids. By the by, I just can't resist mentioning that it seems to fly under the radar, but there have been at least three studies now showing the same effect in patients with asthma. A smaller effect, our patients with asthma tend to be younger, perhaps have more robust immune systems, but the inhaled corticosteroids that we use for lung disease do come at a cost of increased risk of infectious disease. Beyond pneumonia, my colleagues here at the University Health Network would want me to point out that there is an increased risk of mycobacterial disease. In countries where tuberculosis is endemic, there's an increased risk of tuberculosis when patients with COPD use inhaled corticosteroids. Indeed, our colleagues in Quebec in Canada years ago looked at the large RAMQ database. They found a signal of increased tuberculosis in patients using inhaled corticosteroids for lung disease. And then finally, something that we're starting to see a lot of in my province of Ontario, we're starting to see more and more non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease. And again, we have at least two studies showing that that's associated with the use of inhaled corticosteroids. So back to this spectrum, yes, I think we're all now arriving at the consensus that inhaled corticosteroids do something in COPD. The something seems to be exacerbation reduction. And now the question is, are you going to treat patients precisely, give inhaled corticosteroids when they're needed to frequent exacerbators, and not give them if they're not needed in the majority of patients who are not frequent exacerbators. And those are the ends of the spectrum, the sunset end of the spectrum, where it's safe to de-escalate in non-exacerbators, or the impact end of the spectrum, where the subset of patients who exacerbate frequently might benefit from triple therapy. Well, thank you for breaking that down for us and, and making clearer that the results seem to all be in conjunction rather than have a discrepancy with one another, and that's more related to the participants that were studied, the frequent exacerbators as an impact versus the non-frequent exacerbators as in sunset. You talked a little bit about how to incorporate these findings in day-to-day practice. This is a pragmatic trial after all. And What are we supposed to do with these results in the clinic when we have a patient with COPD in front of us? I find that a great many patients with COPD are concerned about using steroids. If I'm looking at a patient who is on an older triple regimen and I discuss that with them, if they're not exacerbating, they're often very interested in using a regimen that does not include inhaled corticosteroids. If the patient has had a long, quiet course without exacerbation, if the patient has had low blood eosinophil counts, if those are available, Sunset encourages me to make the shift, the de-escalation, if you will, from triple therapy to dual bronchodilator therapy abruptly in one prescription shift, as it was done in Sunset, and I'm comfortable that that's safe and secure. 
There was another minor finding that we've become aware of from sunset. I didn't mention it earlier, but this is also of interest. There weren't many exacerbations. As I've said, they tended to occur a bit more in patients with higher blood eosinophil counts. The other thing we noticed was they tended to occur early if they were going to occur. So if you were going to have an exacerbation, have a problem with the abrupt withdrawal of inhaled steroids, it was in the first month, perhaps six weeks, where that happened. So physicians, if they are going to do this and they want to be especially vigilant, can keep an eye open in that first month. They can also be reassured if things don't happen during that first month after withdrawal that they're probably not going to happen. Perhaps that's over-reading the data, but it makes a sort of sense and is somewhat reassuring. Along the topic of eosinophils, I think that your results are in line with a number of recent studies showing that eosinophils are associated with risk of exacerbation. Should we be checking eosinophil counts on on all of our patients with COPD when deciding what to do with inhaler therapy? I want to say yes, but then your follow-up question is going to be, at what benchmark, at what number should physicians be concerned? And there's where our debate is. So my gentle answer is yes, I think eosinophils mean something. I think the higher they are, the more aware we should be. But we should also be aware that blood eosinophil counts are somewhat variable. And so it isn't just a single high number that should guide our prescribing or our thinking. It should be the persistently high number. Of course, at some point, if the number of blood eosinophils is high enough, we might start to wonder if we're dealing with a patient who has asthma, COPD overlap. We might start to wonder if there is a signal there that biologic therapy might be useful. One of the anti-IL-5 drugs developed primarily for asthma. Could we use that in our patient with a blood eosinophil count of 800 or 1,000 and frequent exacerbations? And those are all interesting debates that are going to guide studies over the next several years. So yes, is there a bloody eosinophil signal? Absolutely, we should use it, but we're going to have to figure out how to use it with further research. I think it's also interesting to consider other biomarkers. There are things that we are not looking at rigorously that we should. Coming from Toronto, where the methodology was first outlined carefully, I'd say exhaled nitric oxide has some promise. Am I telling you that we should guide our COPD prescribing based on exhaled nitric oxide? Well, no, but I think there is something there that's worth looking at. I have a hunch that down the road in five years, let's say, we are going to be guiding our prescribing by some sort of index where we use all of the available data. We'll use exacerbation tendency, blood eosinophil count, perhaps pheno, perhaps some other biomarker, and that will tell us which category to place the patient and and whether or not to add inhaled steroids or other things to the treatment regimen. One more follow-up to the day-to-day practice. You specifically looked at the LABA-LAMA combination with indicaterol and glycoperonium. Do you think that it's safe to extrapolate these data to all LAMA-LABA combinations? I think most docs listening will decide that this is a class effect, that they will extend it to all LABA-LAMAs. In fairness, we'd have to say the LABA-LAMA combinations have not been compared head-to-head. There's some obvious differences. Some are twice daily, some are once daily. The delivery devices are different. There may be some differences in the actual drug entities and the actual compounds. Certainly the one that we use, the indicaterol glycopronium, is one of the most widely studied of the labalama combinations, and arguably some data suggests that it contains the most potent of the long-acting beta agonists. 
But at the end of the day, I think we can safely take away the message that de-escalation works, that Laba Lamas are sufficient for a large number, perhaps the majority of our patients with COPD. Maybe one of the bits of fine-tuning in the future is to compare the various entities available to achieve that labalama combination therapy. One last question for you, and then I'll let you get going. Can you just tell us what you think are the most pressing questions regarding inhaler management and COPD that have yet to be addressed? I think there's some obvious things that need to be addressed in inhaler management. In its last iteration, the gold strategy more formally acknowledged the importance of inhaler technique and inhaler teaching for patients with COPD. It's something that's been discussed frequently in the management of patients with asthma, has been somewhat neglected in patients with COPD, and uh, the Molomard study, perhaps others, have shown us that patients who can't handle their inhalers and who make mistakes with them are more likely to have COPD exacerbations. So technique is certainly an issue. The other one is compliance, and I think some of my colleagues believe a bit naively that because COPD patients are so chronically breathless that, of course, they will take their medicine regularly. But we know that compliance is often poor in COPD, and I think we need to look more closely at that to monitor the use of medication. It could lead to some interesting strategies. Going back to the main theme of our discussion today, whether or not patients use inhaled steroids as part of the regimen, if they do use inhaled steroids for exacerbation reduction, do they need to use them all year round, or could they use inhaled corticosteroids during the cough and cold season and take a holiday in the summer when they're less likely to have viral infections? Could they use the inhaled corticosteroids, the potent ones we have today, to treat the exacerbation, to reduce its duration, for example? So we have a number of questions about how patients use their inhaled medication, but right down to the basics, have they been taught? Do they use them correctly and do they use them regularly? Those basics continue to be devil our management of obstructive lung disease. Well, Dr. Chapman, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about the recent Sunset trial. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So that was Dr. Kenneth Chapman again discussing the results of the Sunset trial in which inhaled corticosteroid therapy was de-escalated in COPD non-exacerbators. The results of the study were quite interesting. There was a small reduction in FEV1 with de-escalation of therapy, the clinical implications of which are not entirely clear. But more importantly, there was no significant increase in the risk of exacerbations with de-escalation of therapy. And finally, those with an eosinophil count less than 300 seemed to fare much better with de-escalation of therapy that could potentially prompt the clinician to check eosinophil NFL count when considering inhaler management and COPD. This is Lucian Martz signing off.